Welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Margaret C. Stevenson and Kelly C. Burke, who are the co-authors with Betty L. Bottoms of uh, a new collection. I should say editors, not authors, of a new collection entitled The Legacy of Racism for Children. Psychology, Law, and Public Policy from Oxford University Press. Uh, Kelly, Maggie, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, So I wonder if we might start by asking each of you just to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and how you all came to this particular project. Uh, Why don't we start with you, Maggie? Uh, Sure. So... um... I'm an associate professor of psychology at the University of Evansville, which is in southern Indiana. I uh, got my PhD in social psychology, and uh, my emphasis of research, my focus of research, is at the intersection of psychology and the law. And in particular, um, I have a special interest in understanding children's experiences when they enter the legal system. Um, So... And, and within that, you know, perceptions and under, um, experiences of marginalized children can enter the legal system. So I've long had a special interest in understanding um, racial minority children's experiences. Um, so whether they're uh, victims of crime, um, that's one way they often enter the legal system, or perpetrators of crime, uh, so, so another way um, that they enter the legal system. And uh, so, so that's, that's what I do. I, I'm a you know, I'm also a professor, so I teach um, courses related to social psychology um, research, but also specialized courses related to uh, psychology and the law, children's psychology and the law, and, and stereotyping racism and prejudice. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Great. So how about you, Kelly? Um, so I am a doctoral candidate in um, social psychology at the University of Illinois at Chicago, um, where I work with um, Betty Bottoms, um, who's also uh, who was also Maggie's um, former advisor, um, and I'm in my going into my fifth year uh, this coming year, and my research also focuses uh, on the intersection of psychology and law, and I am uh, particularly interested in factors that influence um, different aspects of legal decision making, um, in particular juror and police officer decision making, and how uh, race prejudice, discrimination can influence um, those different types of decision-making, as well as how case evidence, um, such as body-worn camera footage, influences um, different aspects of juror decision-making and public perceptions of police officers. Terrific. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, this is an edited collection that covers an extraordinary amount of territory. It roughly breaks down into four broad categories. One that deals with questions of children of color as victims, looking at sex trafficking, corporal punishment, uh, child sexual abuse. Another that looks of uh, at children of color, and it's mostly black children, uh, but not exclusively 
uh, looking at dependency courts and adoption processes and legal proceedings. Another section that looks at uh, the effects of children on the larger criminal legal system and then specifically on the juvenile criminal legal system, that juvenile criminal legal system, that turns out to be hard to say. Uh, and then a final section that looks at a range of issues around immigration law and policy, again, how it affects children of color. So with, with that said, I wonder if we might proceed as follows, and that is uh, uh, I'll ask you two just to talk a little bit about who you think the audience for this collection is and what your goals are for it, and then um, ask you two to, to tell us what you think we should be paying attention to, given that we can't pay attention to everything in the book, and maybe highlight for us what you think are the key themes or issues that run through it. Uh, and then finally, I'll ask us to conclude uh, by having you two talk a little bit about solutions, about what you think we might be able to do about some of the problems that you highlight. So why don't we start in that first place? Who's the audience for the book and, and what do you hope that it achieves? Uh, and since we started with Maggie, why don't we start with you, Kelly? Oh, great. Um, so I think our audience, it's um, it's really tailored towards um, a variety of individuals. It's not only um, researchers uh, who conduct, you know, research in various um, different social sciences, but also it's aimed at um, legal professionals, policymakers, um, teachers, um, really anyone who um, is involved and including the general public in um, ways that we can put an end to the legacy of racism for children as it, you know, plays out in different um, laws and policies. And so I think our, um, our, our overarching goal with the book is um, not only to understand and call attention to the ways in which laws and public policy can negatively affect um, racial minority children's lives, but also to apply social science research um, in order to try and offer possible solutions um, to curbing this effect and also trying to call to action psychologists, um, social scientists, legal professionals, policymakers, the public, um, really everyone um, to try and make this happen to, you know, inform and change laws and policies so that, um, you know, we can minimize and ideally eliminate um, racial disparities that stem from them. Great. Uh, Maggie, anything you'd like to add to that? Oh, I think Kelly uh, nailed it. I, I, the only thing I could think to add in terms of additional audiences, I, I'd love to see get their hands on this book are just all the frontline workers who interact with children who enter the legal system, um, including the police, including social workers. You know, uh, I, I'd love to see this book make it into their hands. Um, and yes, in terms of goal, I, I'll just echo um, everything that, that Kelly said, um, that that policy and law solutions. We're looking for them now, perhaps in a way that we really haven't been open to in the past. And, you know, we want this book, you know, this book reviews uh, the empirical evidence that speaks directly to these policy and law solutions. And, and we hope, a big goal of ours, is for these policy and law solutions to be informed by this empirical evidence. It is synthesized in this book, and we'd like for these policies and laws not to just be, um, you know, not, not to ignore 
the, the amazing work that scholars um, and scientists have, have already been doing um, and have done. And, and so, so it's here and it's synthesized and, and we hope that it informs those decisions. Right. So before we're going to make people hold on for solutions and, and until we get there, we're going to uh, bring them down a little bit and, and talk about sort of the nature of the problem. So let's start with you, Maggie. Um, again, as you sort of think through the enormous range of material that's covered in the book, um, are there are there themes or patterns or particular issues that you think are especially important that we draw attention to and talk about in this context? And then I will ask uh, the same thing of you, Kelly. Sure. Um, so, so yes. Um, although what I will also say is that um, the, the issues that I'm going to talk about and bring up, um, although I think they're especially important to talk about now, I hope that doesn't imply that the other issues should take a backseat and Absolutely. should be ignored. Yeah. Um, but, but I will say that I, um, you know, in, in light of the recent protests um, across the world, um, I think there are some key themes and elements in this book that um, I think have the potential to um, be impactful um, right now at this moment, since uh, there is community sentiment that supports changes uh, and, and policy and lawmakers are, are unprecedentedly open to um, some of these changes. And so, so those chapters, I think, um, or, or those sections of the book have to do with um, um, police youth encounters, um, how, how those interactions are experienced, how, um, and, and particularly for, for youth of color. Uh, also, uh, the, the school to prison pipeline, we have a chapter on that, um, which also certainly has to do with um, police youth uh, encounters as well. So why don't we go back to that, that first one and dig in just a little bit. So, so what do we know about the ways in which police interact with young people and particularly young people of color that is important that we understand? What's different about those encounters? Sure. Do you want me to keep going or do you want me to turn it over to Kelly? Or yeah, no, go ahead. And then we'll go, we'll go unless, okay. unless Kelly feels more comfortable waiting in with no. that question. You well, I'm sure she'll have plenty of stuff to add. Like. So yeah, 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 I'm sure she'll, she'll be able to supplement. But um, what we, what we do know um, is that, um, you know, minority youth are, um, uh, they have different attitudes toward the police. And this is true for adults. Um, minority individuals. They have different attitudes toward the police than white individuals do. Um, those attitudes um, are uh, driven in large part by uh, their, their experiences, their parents' experiences, their community's experiences with the police. Um, and, they're, and they're more negative. Um, they're um, characterized by greater distrust toward the police. Um, we also know that not trusting the police has a variety of negative implications um, for societies and for communities um, and for individual encounters with the police, right? So, so you can sort of imagine um, within that sort of individual encounter with a police officer, if you don't trust that police officer, um, what that might do to your behavior. Um, and we also find um, that um, these attitudes um, that, you know, police in many ways are no different from, they are, they're, they have the same kinds of attitudes that, um, 
that all people have, um, which by and large are, um, you know, they have racial biases, um, you know, like everyone else is what I'm trying to say. Um, and so, so these um, can create sort of cyclically negative interactions. Um, Cynthia Najowski, Betty Bottoms, Phil Goth, Phil Goth have done some research on, on precisely this, how these sort of expectations that minority youth have of being um, targeted by police in a in, uh, discriminatory way sets the stage for a negative police encounter. Um, so it makes them nervous, for instance, makes minority youth nervous that they'll appear, um, uh, that that police will perceive them as criminal-like. Um, that nervousness, as you might imagine, manifests in behavioral ways that makes them ironically look suspicious to police. Um, and in turn, police um, perceive them as, as more suspicious, as more criminal-like. Of course, this is a simplistic, um, not, not necessarily simplistic, but that's not the entire picture because we also know that police stereotypes and prejudices um, in and of themselves um, exacerbate the problem. But, but it, it, I, I say this and I bring this research up to, to, to complicate um, these interactions, um, to, to um, make it clear that they, they can become so quickly negative um, for a variety of reasons, um, what's in the minds of these youth and what's in the minds of these police officers. Um, Kelly, do you want to jump in? I don't want to. Oh, um, yes, sure. Um, so, yeah, I, everything um, everything Maggie said and, um, you know, kind of building off of um, some of the things she just mentioned. So, you know, um, like Maggie said, police officers like, you know, everybody. They, there are certain racial stereotypes that many people are aware of. They don't, you know, they don't endorse the stereotypes, but they might be aware of them. And one of um, some of the research that uh, the book covers is how Black youth are perceived as older and more culpable than white youth are of, you know, equal age and, um, you know, same context. And what, you know, this is so problematic because, you know, in particular with, uh, in the context of police officers, because, you know, if you're already um, going into a situation that's, you know, um, laden with, you know, danger or, or you know, you officers are trained to approach any situation as potentially dangerous and life-threatening. So if you couple that with um, stereotypes that associate um, Black youth with, you know, looking older and more mature than they are and more dangerous than white youth, this sets up a, you know, it's, it just sets up a really bad situation. And so not trying, not trying to get into the solutions part, but so, you know, this yeah. leads into, you know, how can, what can be done to, um, you know, stop, you know, st first of all, ideally breaking these stereotypes, but, you know, also, intervening so that these stereotypes don't influence behavior. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add, I, I feel like I left out a really important component of that puzzle, which is that uh, minority youth are targeted more frequently by the police. Um, they do yeah. have significantly more frequently, more frequent negative encounters and interactions with the police. This is why they have more negative attitudes toward the police. Not as if these attitudes are necessarily unfounded. Right. 
Um, and it's those encounters which drive those attitudes. Um, so, so if we can eliminate that disproportionate, the negative type of encounter, we can, we can shift those attitudes um, is all I wanted to I was just going to say earlier that, that this gets a little bit beyond just the, 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 the psychology of it. Uh, but of course, the, the, the added, I don't even know what the word is, complexity, irony is that that uh, irrational, unfounded sense of threat that that armed police officer may feel may itself be legal justification for using force. Right. So we wind up with this system that internalizes this uh, threat perception. Right. And that carries presumably all the way through the entire system and those those young people's encounters with the criminal legal system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you had Maggie, you had mentioned earlier school to prison pipeline. Kelly, I wonder if you might uh, bring us and talk a little bit about how that that plays out in this context. Yes. So um, the. Um, school to prison pipeline, um, it's, you know, r- the research shows that this um, begins, you know, it starts in preschool. So um, in one of the chapters, um, Kate Zinzer and Shannon Wainless, they talk about how even in preschool settings, um, there are, you know, policies and measures that are very harsh disciplinary policies and that research shows um, also target um, racial minorities as opposed to white children um, at a disproportionate rate. So, um, you know, young um, racial minority children are, you know, suspended from preschool, which is, you know, I think that's so one of the things that from preschool from preschool. So there's yes, they're or they're, you know, they're kicked out. And this is preschool. These are, you know, little children, which is just heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, moving on, you know, into, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, um, there are policies that, you know, have created um, justice, criminal justice-like um, environment in schools, whether it's, you know, the use of metal detectors or um, school resource officers. And these policies have actually ended up, you know, criminalizing or penalizing um, normal, you know, adolescent behavior that should you know, it would be better handled, you know, through school administrators and teachers as opposed to, um, you know, more severe disciplinary policies because it ends up, you know, we see there's racial disparities in, you know, the expulsion and suspension of racial minority youth, which then, you know, just instigates a cascade of issues, including, you know, if you're um, expelled from school, then you're you're missing out not only on your education, you're missing out on, you know, you know, healthy peer relationships and everything like that. So um, and employment opportunities and opportunities for upward mobility, presumably. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, it really it just yeah, it creates a again, like I said, starting even in preschool, it just creates a really bad trickle down effect that influences not only, you know, the social, emotional, um, cognitive development of children, but, you know, proceed, you know, carries through, um, as they grow older. And as, you know, like you said, with, you know, job opportunities and, um, development opportunities. 
Yeah. So Maggie, what else should we be thinking about as we think about sort of the, the issues that are raised in the chapters throughout the volume? Sure. Um, if it's okay, if I add just a little bit to the school, of course, of course. Pipeline, I, I was just going to add, um, you know, I think you expressed some shock about the sort of the, the fact that these disparities exist at the preschool age, um, which I, I get all the time whenever I, I mention this line of research, people are just shocked. And I will add that, you know, not only do we see that black children are disproportionately more likely to be expelled and suspended at basically every grade level, um, starting at preschool on up, I wanted to highlight that this is true even when we hold constant their behavior, right? Even when we hold constant right. and control, statistically control for their um, misbehavior, their their behavior problems in school, it still happens disproportionately more for minor, racial minority youth and for white youth. We know this because we've done the, the analyses by statistically controlling for it, but we also know this because we've done the true experimental studies. Um, my uh, former student, Ari Watson, and I just experimentally manipulated uh, a child, a, a high school student in adolescence race, and we did it in a very subtle way. We called him either a stereotypically white sounding name like Justin or stereotypically black sounding name like Jamal. So that was the only difference. We held everything else constant. And we surveyed teachers and school administrators and presented them with a scenario of this little, of this high school kid getting involved in a fight with another student. And a school police resource officer comes and uses physical force on the kids. So body slams him, puts him in a chokehold, that kind of thing. And what we find is that um, even though we made no differences to those two scenarios, the only difference was how black does his name sound? Um, the teachers were significantly more supportive of punishing the kid when he was black um, than when we portrayed him as white. Um, and also their attitudes toward police legitimacy, their attitudes toward legal authoritarianism, as those increased their support for um, punishing the kid and for that police use of physical violence on that kid increased. But this was always um, more strong of a relationship when we portrayed him as black than when we portrayed him as white. And in many cases, only strong, only significant when we portrayed him as black than when we portrayed him as white. So it's not just police, it's teachers who have these biases and who are perpetuating these, you know, uh, greater, uh, proportionately, disproportionately greater negative experiences for my racial minority. And you, and you talk, it's, or the, the, the authors of, of the chapters in the volume talk about the ways in which this plays out with judges, with lawyers, with social workers, with caseworkers, with adoption agencies, right? Yep. With, with every agency or institution that a young child might encounter has uh, racial biases built into the ways in which they function in ways that are documented over and over and over again throughout the research. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. <laughs> um. So why don't we turn to solutions? Uh, you want to kick us off, Maggie? So what 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 do we do about this? So I think there are all you know you're you're seeing a lot of calls right now for things that we need to be doing. You know we're not holding, unfortunately, we're not holding police accountable um, for for um, disproportionately. Um, harming uh, racial minority youth, um, racial minorities broadly uh, speaking. Um, so, so that needs to change. Um, and I think there are a lot of calls um, for, for those changes. 
you know, we, we had seen some movement in the right direction um, under the Obama administration. There had been a rolling back of school resource officers in schools, which all evidence suggests is the right move. Um, that was reversed under Betsy DeVos um, under her administration. I think, um, you know, we were seeing, I don't think she has introduced more police, school police resource officers back into the schools. Um, so uh, we, need to, we need to stop doing that. We need to get back on track there um, with eliminating that. We also need to um, um, educate teachers. We need to um, make, make it clear that these racial disparities, that these racial biases that they have, these attitudes that they have are harming youth of color um, um, and perpetuating oppression um, and white supremacy. Um, so education, that's what the authors, um, Catherine Zinser and Shannon Wanlis of the, the school to prison pipeline have called for. Um, and, and giving these teachers access to these resources and, and to this kind of education. Um, and putting in place um, other types of services within schools that um, are, are greatly needed um, to, to help, help these processes come about. Um, uh, Kelly, do you want to jump in at all? I, oh, yes. So, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, and so um, I think in, you know, in addition to like school to prison pipeline, going back to um, a comment you made earlier, Stephen, um, about how with police officers, the system like internalizes this threat perception. And so in terms of policing, I, um, you know, there needs to be a there needs to be a change to officer training and officer culture. And there have been some um, really, really great programs that have started to do this. But unfortunately, it's not it's not the norm. The norm is not a. Not, sorry, forgive me for interrupting. Do we do we have good evidence that those kinds of training programs actually work? So those um, so there is some they're in their preliminary stages. Um, there's there's a lot of research on procedural justice. So like instilling procedural just, justice into policing it does improve um, perceptions of police legitimacy and trust um, and confidence in police. And it's, you know, in procedurally just policing, it's the idea is you, um, you approach a situation and you treat the civilian you're interacting with, with respect, with dignity, transparency, you give people a voice. So you explain, here's why I'm stopping you. And then if they have questions, um, you, yeah, you allow for questions and you provide answers um, and there is evidence that procedurally just policing is um, it does have positive outcomes. Um, there are different um, training programs uh, in different um, areas of the United States that, you know, build upon procedurally just policing. And those um, there's some um, support for that. Um, they're still in, you know, that that line of research is I, it's still um, in the process. So conclusively um like the specific programs that have been developed um are ongoing um but there is definite support for um procedurally just policing and um adding to that the you know changes to the overall culture and the mentality that um even academy recruits are trained with um moving from a what's called like a warrior mindset which is you know Basically, what I was saying earlier, you go into every situation, you're trained to, you know, expect a basic traffic stop could be life threatening and 
that the person you're stopping, whoever it is, could potentially harm you. And while that's understandable because officers are, you know, you know, putting their lives on the line and, you know, potentially in could go into a, you know, potentially dangerous situation. The problem with that mentality is that it's, it, it, it creates just an aggressive, an overly aggressive um, stance. And as opposed to train, putting, instilling that in the culture, if you were to instill something called the guardian mindset, where you, um, you know, officers learn to empathize, to cooperate with um, the individuals they're interacting with. There's, they tra- it trains patience and respect. I think that really would um, make a big difference. Great. So Maggie, um, I think I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, We have sort of only touched upon the very broad range of issues and institutions that are, are touched upon throughout the the volume. Um, So, so in our, our last couple of minutes, um, as you think about sort of, of solutions in other areas, is there anything that you would particularly like to, to draw people's attention to or make sure that we, we have in our heads as we walk away from this conversation? Oh, sure. Um, you know, I, I, I keep coming back to this. And, and, and frankly, every chapter you read, you can come back to this point. Um, we make calls for future research that's necessary. We make calls for policy change that's necessary. Um, but ultimately, I think the answer is education. Um, and I think you can see, I, I'm getting a little bit more optimistic because I'm seeing more um, support for um, real education, um, beginning with young children about um, racial biases. Um, you know, it's not, you know, a lot of this research, people are so shocked to learn about it um, or, you know, just basic um awareness of uh, racism and our country's history of it. People are not being taught this. Um, What are they being taught? Well, they're being taught to to have racial biases. You know, we live in an infected world, breathing in that smog of racism from, you know, the the moment we're born, Um, you know, George Floyd's killer. um, You know, we contributed to that. You know, we caused that by not um, prioritizing education about racism by not training our youth um, to become anti-racist. We're all complicit um, in this. We're not um, prioritizing it in the schools as we should. We're not prioritizing it as parents. Um, It needs to be prioritized in schools um, to create future parents who will prioritize it. Um, So so I guess my, I I will just come back to that is, is education, educating not only children, but there's also, you know, we need to educate um, the, the adults as well, um, and in particular, the adults ha- who have um, so much potential to improve or to harm um, the children who enter the, the lives of the children who enter the legal system. You have been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking today with Maggie Stevenson and Kelly Burke, who are the co-editors with Betty Bottoms of a terrific new collection entitled The Legacy of Racism for Children, Psychology, Law, and Public Policy from Oxford University Press. Kelly, Maggie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank Thank you so so much for having us. us.